the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today on the program, we'll talk with Jeff Johnston, culture and policy analyst for Focus on the Family. He's going to talk about how families can navigate the Pride Month and beyond because there's literally an event every month of the calendar, uh, particularly with children. So we'll get into that coming up in the second hour of the program. We'll take a look at what's happening with the United Methodist Church if some 70 churches have uh, officially split from the denomination and the massacre of some 50 Nigerians uh, over the weekend. All of that coming up in um, today's program. Well, Pentecost Sunday, it fell this week on the 5th of June. That was, of course, this past Sunday. It's rightly known as the birthday of the church, but it also serves as a reminder that Christians' key mission is to reach the unreached with the gospel. Now, Pentecost Sunday commemorates the coming of the Holy Spirit on the early followers of Jesus, as Acts, the second chapter, verses 1 through 4, records, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and some rested on uh, and, and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Well, on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, according to the second chapter of Acts, verses 38 and 39, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What a tremendous day to have witnessed those events on that day. Pretty incredible. Well, it's through the Spirit that one can appreciate rather and appropriate God's promises in Jesus by accepting Him as Lord and Savior. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, black or white or Asian. Hmm. And all were made to drink of one spirit. It's the dwelling of the spirit as a result of accepting Jesus as one's Lord and Savior that makes one a Christian and part of the church. Well, equally important is what Jesus said about the mission After the early uh, beginnings, uh, after the early believers, rather, would receive the Spirit, it's called the Great Commission. Before he ascended into heaven, he had instructed his disciples not to leave Jerusalem and to wait for the gift my Father promised. He promised that when the Holy Spirit came to them, they would receive power and be his witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, according to Acts 1, verses 4 through 8. Now, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in every believer, and he has given us the power to spread and share his gospel throughout the whole world. A gospel movement, Alliance for uh, the Unreached, observes Pentecost Sunday every year as the International 
International Day for the Unreached. Today, over three billion people, that's a third of humanity, have yet to hear the good news of Jesus. The Alliance says on its website, well, just before ascending back to the throne of the Father, where he's seated on the right hand, making intercession for you and for me. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Pentecost Sunday, June the 5th, we all celebrated remembering those events that touch the lives of every believer, even in the 21st century. So it's a pretty incredible thing. Well, today also marks the anniversary of D-Day, the Allied invasion of France, codenamed Operation Overlord. It uh, commenced in the early hours of June the 6th, 1944. It was the beginning of the end of Adolf Hitler's National Socialist Workers, or Nazi Party. That's what it stands for, National Socialist Workers uh, Party. And its reign of terror across Europe. It was an epic battle in defense of American liberty and, by extension, that of all Humanity at the time of that day and many bloody days that followed on the European and Pacific fronts, American scholars uh, remind us that soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines purchased liberty for the next generation at a very, very heavy human price. It is our sacred responsibility now to extend that inheritance to the next generation. On this and every day, we need to pray for our patriot, our armed forces now standing in harm's way around the world and here at home in defense of our liberty and for the families awaiting their safe return. President Franklin Roosevelt, he trumpeted America's foundation of faith to inspire the nation in the finest hour on D-Day, June 6, 1944, in which he Uh, said, Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. He said resolutely on D-Day, leading a prayer that cracked, uh, crackled from radios coast to coast and to service members and occupied nations around the globe. Now, 78 years later, some Americans believe that His stirring call to spiritual arms can unite the nation once again and pay tribute to the sacrifice and commitment of our military and veterans. Well, FDR's prayers seem to bring everybody together. So observes Chris Long. He's of Akron, Ohio, and he's the leader of the D-Day Prayer Project. It aims to permanently install the prayer in D.C. We hope it can speak to generations to come, he says. Well, the construction of this uh, prayer monument at the National World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C., is set to begin this July, may be completed by early December. The Christian Alliance of America launched the effort some 11 years ago to get the rousing text of Roosevelt's prayer, all 525 words of it, engraved in perpetuity at the National Memorial. The World War II Memorial Prayer Act Sponsored by Senator Rob Portman, a Republican from Ohio, and Representative Bill Johnson, also of Ohio, was passed unanimously by the Senate back in 2014 and enjoyed overwhelming bipartisan support in the House. Two weeks later, President Obama signed that bill into law on June the 30th, 2014, but no tax dollars were allotted for the project. Hence, it won't begin breaking ground until July of this year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, but uh, we'll be back, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, you may have just caught just the ever so slight trace 
of the birthday song. Today is my 66th birthday, and I managed to drag my ancient carcass from my bed this morning with the vigor of a 30-year-old and made my way to the office, and here I am. Okay, maybe I'm getting a little too enthusiastic. (laughs) Thank you, Sam. I appreciate that. Yeah, today is my birthday, as it is every year on D-Day. And yes, I've heard all the comments about the connection that could be made there, but we won't dwell on the fact. All right. Well, the Supreme Court Monday did not issue a ruling in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And in so doing, they prolonged for at least one more week the wait for its opinion, which is expected to overturn the right to an abortion, the constitutional right that somewhere in that uh, that cloud, the penumbra they talked about, somewhere in the Constitution they found it. Only the 13 could apparently see it, but it was there. Well, last month, Politico published a leaked draft opinion that indicated the Supreme Court is set to overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, that, of course, is the 1973 case that established a federal right to an abortion. We'll see what the justices have to say. Well, the justices released decisions today in multiple cases, but Dobbs was not among them. There's now approximately a month left in the court's current term. A ruling in Dobbs is expected to come by either late June or early July. The court ruled in three cases, however. Uh, One was a bankruptcy law case involving a trustee for the uh, defunct tech store Circuit City. Another was a Florida-based case on Medicaid. And a third was a labor dispute and involved Southwest Airlines and a worker who wanted to sue the airline over allegedly lacking overtime wages rather than go to arbitration. Well, the Dobbs case stems from a dispute over a Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. It was argued in December the case is seen as the biggest test yet of how the new 6-3 Republican appointed majority in the court, which shouldn't matter but does, capped with the confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett in 2020, will handle major controversial issues. Well, as the court continues to finalize its rulings in that case and several others before the summer recess, the investigation into who leaked the draft opinion by the court officials is ongoing. Now, the presumption is one of the clerks did it. But, you know, it's not all that difficult to imagine that perhaps one of the Supreme Court justices might have. I'm speculating. I have no evidence to support that, but no one knows And I'm just wondering, as the rest of the nation is as well. Well, Joe Kennedy was, in his words, a pretty bad kid. So when he was given the opportunity to coach football at the high school level where he graduated, it felt like an opportunity for penance to pay back all the debts, he says. He hoped to help prevent his players from falling into the same traps that he did. Well, but when Kennedy, now age 53, was forced to choose between his coaching position and his faith, The former Marine says that was a no-brainer, and he stood up and he fought. Well, Kennedy's fight for faith began in 2015. Remember that? So long ago. After he'd been an assistant coach at Bremerton High School, a public school about 30 miles west of Seattle, for seven years. From the time he started coaching in 2008, he recalls he made a covenant with God that he would take a knee in prayer and thanksgiving at the end of every game. He wasn't corralling the team. Uh, He wasn't talking to anybody. He would just do that. For himself on his own. I don't remember anything about the first time I took the knee because it was not a big deal, Kennedy said. He was speaking to the Daily Signal in an interview for a documentary on his case. It was just me going out there and, well, taking a knee by myself and giving thanks for what the players just did and being part of it. Well, it didn't take long before the football coach's um, players wanted to know what he was doing at the 50 yard line at the end of every game. 
Players asked him whether they could join him, and soon the post-game prayer became, well, a new tradition for the team. During those moments, Kennedy also would deliver a brief motivational speech to the players. No parent or student filed a complaint about the post-game prayer. But a complaint there has been. In 2015, the Bremerton School District learned about the prayers, told Kennedy he could no longer do so. They just learned about it. They didn't observe it. They didn't have a complaint from any parent or student. It was really simple for me to agree with them and say, that's not a problem. I'll, I never pray with the kids ever again. He continued to pray by himself after games, he says, but soon school lawyers got involved and they kind of kept moving the goalpost. Supervisors told him that they could no longer pray even by himself if people could see him. And that's where he just drew the line. Well, the school district placed him on administrative leave because he refused to stop taking a knee in prayer after the football games. When it came time for um, his contract to be renewed, he says his year-end evaluation read in great big bold letters, do not rehire. Well, Coach Kennedy was fired because he wanted to take a knee in private prayer by himself at the 50-yard line in view of students. Well, the coach says he decided to file a lawsuit against the Bremerton School District when he realized that he was not going to be able to win this by himself. There was no way I could talk to the school district anymore, he says. Their lawyers said I was um, not to be in any contact with a school or anyone at the school unless it was through lawyers. So he lawyered up. After the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the Bremerton School District, Kennedy and his attorneys with First Liberty appealed to the Supreme Court. Well, the high court heard arguments in Kennedy's case on the 25th of April. Government employees still have the right to live their life. Kelly Shackelford, who's the chief counsel and president and CEO of First Liberty, said they can uh, go to church, they can speak, they can pray, and we should uh, never allow the government to punish them for doing so. Well, the attorney who is the vice president and legal director of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State represented Bremerton School District before the high court. Well, the justices had to consider several important questions. Sarah Parshall Perry, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, wrote in April for the Daily Signal and Think Tank's uh, multimedia news organization. The questions facing the justices are these. When a public school's employee says a brief, quiet prayer by himself while at school and visible to students, is he engaged in government speech that lacks any First Amendment protection? And if not, assuming that kind of religious expression is private and protected by the First Amendment, does the Constitution's Establishment Clause require the public school to prohibit it anyway? The Supreme Court is expected to answer those questions in a ruling anticipated sometime this month. Another big deal. Well, the ugly reality of Bidenflation is setting in as more and more Americans have been forced to tighten their financial belts in response to soaring prices, especially when it comes to gasoline. Well, even the administration is now conceding that the 40-year inflation rate is not a transitory problem. We were assured it was some months back. As it had previously been asserted, it means far more than just a smug, I told you so, however. In many cases, it means big life changes. I think I was wrong then about the path that inflation would take. That's an admission from the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, last week. As I mentioned, she went on to say there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted energy and food prices and supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that I didn't at the time didn't fully understand. But we recognize that now, end quote. Well, as the reality of long-term high inflation has set in, some troubling trends have begun to develop, including 25 percent of Americans having been forced to delay retirement. 
I'm among them. Prices across the board from cars and gasoline to groceries and other everyday essentials are rising at the fastest pace since the 1980s. Consumers have to think differently about their finances in this inflationary environment, and consumers are thinking differently. Recent uh, survey data shows that some 21 percent of Americans have reduced their retirement savings, while 36 percent of Americans have reduced their overall savings. Those uh, most affected by this shift have been younger Americans, ages 18 to 34, with over 60 percent reporting they have to reduce their savings amount altogether. Well, in other news, the honeymoon is officially over as President Biden's press office is plagued by negative coverage and messaging gaffes as the media piles on with tough reports. Raising questions about following the science, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky met with teachers union leaders before tightening the school's mask rules. So who is calling the shots? One wonders. Citing the risk of widespread shortages, Governor Kristi Noem writes, food security is national security and a crisis is coming. Saying these people inspire me, the U.S. Army veteran who served in Iraq has now joined Ukraine's fight against Russia. Seeing red, the Biden administration may unravel a very effective part of Trump's legacy in a bid to tame inflation. And on the proposed gun grab, Representative Steve Scalise Blasted Dems for rushing to call for gun control after shootings, blaming liberal um, DAs for rising crime and snubbing Biden. A Democrat senator insists the president not get involved with bipartisan gun negotiations, saying it's not altogether helpful. And finally, no malarkey. President Biden will appear on Jimmy Kimmel live as his approval rating plunges. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show coming up later in the program. Jeff Johnston Focus on the family culture and policy analyst on how to navigate Pride Month. If you've got little ones, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, we'll talk with Jeff Johnston. He's a culture and policy analyst with Focus on the Family. We'll talk about how to Navigate a Family Through Pride Month and Beyond. Uh, that's coming up in our second hour. Well, in a Washington Post Festivus, Washington Post reporters continue airing their grievances with one another on Twitter. And Mark Levin charges that the ruling class attacks your liberties to avoid facing their own failures. Something to think about. Well, divisions are widening as churches ditch the third largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. Seventy churches in Georgia split from the United Methodist Church last week, largely over LGBTQ issues, marking the latest in a growing divide within the third largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Well, making the ultimate sacrifice, a um, deputy was shot and killed by a suspect who was allowed outside to smoke. In the uh, retail giant's big move, Amazon shares will begin trading around $122 today following the retail giant's 20-for-1 stock split approved by shareholders. Well, far-left DAs are facing a reckoning for their decarceration approach to, uh, to crime. And yes, you heard me correct, decarceration. San Francisco DA Chesa Bowden may receive his final reckoning in California's vote tomorrow. The Wall Street Journal weighs in, saying in November of 2019, with the help of George Soros, Mr. Bowden was elected district attorney after running on a platform of decarceration and ending cash bail. 
Asian Americans were big supporters, not anymore. After leading a successful February recall of three school board members, one member, Allison Collins, said that merit is racist. Asian Americans in San Francisco are now fed up with increased personal and property crimes against them that now uh, often, um, I should say, go unprosecuted. San Francisco has seen a rash of robberies, stealing items valued at Less than $950 is considered a misdemeanor. Last fall, organized smash-and-grab looters hit Louis Vuitton and other luxury stores. Eleven Walgreens have closed since 2019. In a remarkably still-open CVS near Eddy Street, nearly every item is locked behind plexiglass. Is this the future? The Wall Street Journal asks. Well, even leading Democrats are pushing to remove Bowdoin. San Francisco Gates says Bowdoin prides himself in using the lesser charges of accessory after the fact when charging uh, fentanyl dealers for selling the highly lethal drug. This charge, which is a lower charge than possession with the intent to sell, results in offenders getting released back into the community repeatedly and continuing to deal. He obfuscates his lack of results by pointing to the war on drugs, the risk of undocumented dealers getting deported, and the possibility some dealers are victims of trafficking. His deflection to the war on drugs is all smoke and mirrors. The San Francisco Gate reports. And Fox News weighs in. A California teen convicted of plowing a car into a mother and an eight-month-old uh, son will spend just five months in a diversionary program thanks to Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon, according to the woman who survived the crash. Despite shocking surveillance video on the 6th of August 2021, uh, the incident uh, of the incident, numerous eyewitness uh, and initial felony charges, the teen will serve his sentence at a juvenile probation camp, an alternative sentence less severe than juvenile detention. Bill Mulligan says this, despite the juvie's criminal history, sources at the LADA's office tell me that in accordance with his policies, Gascon's administration didn't charge the juvie with assault with a deadly weapon or attempted murder for the hit and run, which led to the light juvie camp sentence. More than eight in 10 Americans are against President Biden's economy. He is badly underwater. With inflation on the rise since last fall, Americans have been significantly affected by the rising cost of goods and services. And more than eight in 10 Americans or 83 percent now say that the economy is either an extremely or very important issue in determining how they will vote in the latest NBC Ipsos poll. In the poll, 80 percent of Americans say that inflation is also an extremely or very important factor in how they will vote. And for uh, gas prices, it's 74 percent. The president's approval rating for his handling of these issues are all well underwater, suggesting trouble for the president and Democratic candidates ahead of the midterms. Only 37 percent approve of the president's handling of the economy, of the economic recovery, and even fewer approve of his handling of inflation at 28 percent and gas prices at 27 percent. How could you approve of gas prices and how that's been handled? 27 percent seem to think seven dollar gas is sort of okay. Ipsos weighs in among Americans who report they are very enthusiastic to vote in November. The economy and inflation are the most important issues. Currently, Republicans outnumber Democrats in their stated enthusiasm to vote in the midterms. RNC research and an ABC poll says that Biden is a serious drag on Democratic candidates nationwide. He's badly underwater on all of the top issues. Ukrainians are on the offensive in their effort to retake parts of the city of uh, Severodonsk, 
While uh, awaiting weaponry aid from U.S. Uh, Wall Street Journal, Ukrainian forces managed to retake parts of the city as part of the counterattack, boosting hopes that they could hold off the Russian offensive in the eastern Donbass region of Kiev. Uh, waited for new long-range rocket systems to arrive from the U.S. The close quarters combat in this uh, community, the capital of the Luhansk region, makes it harder for Russian troops to unleash their artillery against Ukrainian forces. That's been Russia's main advantage in the east, enabling them to crush Ukrainian defenses and make slow but steady gains. Ukrainian leaders are hoping that the arrival of heavier weaponry from the west will enable them to turn the tide against better armed Russian forces in the east of the country. The Biden administration last week said it would provide Ukraine with a guided rocket system capable of striking targets from as far as 48 miles. And Sky News points out that Russia is close to capturing all of Luhansk, one of two southern Ukrainian regions that make up the swath of land known as the Donbass. Russia sent missiles into Kiev and issued a warning to the West. ABC reports that Russia took aim Sunday at Western military supplies for Ukraine, launching airstrikes on Kiev that it claimed destroyed tanks donated from abroad. As Vladimir Putin warned that any Western deliveries of long-range rockets would prompt Moscow to hit objects that we haven't yet struck. The Russian leader's cryptic threat of military escalation did not specify what the new target might be. It came days after the United States announced plans to deliver $700 million of security assistance for Ukraine. That includes four precision-guided medium-range rocket systems, as well as helicopters, javelin anti-tank systems, radar tactical vehicles, and more. The Pentagon said last week that it will take at least three weeks to get the U.S. weapons onto the battlefield. Meanwhile, the New York Post says the Kremlin said it destroyed Ukrainian tanks and other armored vehicles that were being hidden at a railway repair site. A Ukrainian railway official acknowledged the attacks destroyed the eastern Kiev facility, but said no military vehicles were at the site. The attack, the first in weeks on Kiev, put an end to a somewhat return to normal there, where Russian troops uh, largely fled as part of the new strategy to focus on the Donbass region. In the wake of the strikes, presidential advisor uh, said the uh, West still must do more to halt Russia's offensive. In other news, North Korea has tested multiple ballistic missiles. Fox News reports that North Korea fired eight short-range ballistic missiles toward the sea of its east coast on Sunday, a day after South Korea and the United States wrapped up their first combined military exercises involving an American aircraft carrier in more than four years. The missiles were filed from the Sunan area of North Korean capital Pyongyang, South Korea's uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff reported. CBS weighs in. The United States has vowed to push for additional international sanctions if North Korea conducts a new nuclear test. But the prospects for further U.N. Security Council measures appear dim. Russia and China vetoed a U.S.-sponsored resolution that would have imposed additional sanctions on North Korea over its latest ballistic test on the 25th of May, which South Korea's military said involved an ICBM flown on a medium-range trajectory and two short-range weapons. President Biden is threatening to uh, pull funding for schools who do not allow boys and girls bathrooms. The Department of Food and Nutrition Service, an agency within the USDA, announced it will strip money specifically for lunches from schools who don't allow trans students to use the bathroom of their desired gender. Title IX says that school districts uh, will have to allow transgender boys into girls' bathrooms, locker rooms, showers and sleeping quarters in order to keep federal funds for lunches, breakfasts, and snacks. Just like a bully. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the five o'clock hour, we'll hear from Jeff Johnston. He is a culture and policy analyst with Focus on the Family. We'll talk about how to navigate Pride Month, especially if you have uh, young children in your household and you need to explain what's happening. Well, a Dallas club drew backlash by inviting kids to a drag show, hence the interview in the five o'clock hour. WFAA reports that a Dallas drag show that promoters called family friendly and appropriate for kids brought both supporters and protesters uh, to its Saturday afternoon performance. Dallas bar Mr. Mr. held the event, dragged the kids to pride drag show Saturday from 11 to 2 in the city's Oak Lawn neighborhood. The organizers called it a family friendly spinoff of their champagne drag brunch that would allow kids to dance with performers on stage. Well, during the event, performers danced and walked down the aisle in the center of the room, at time, the dancers would take uh, dollar bills from some of the children. Oh, that's so cute. Kids also walked with the dancers down the aisle during the event. Protesters also showed up outside the event, many saying they were upset that kids were involved with such an event. Tim Poole weighs in. It's not okay to tell kids it's, um, well, I won't even quote the sign that was up because it's so highly inappropriate, but it was posted at the site, the Daily Wire wears in or weighs in rather, although Protect Texas Kids said Dallas police removed children and families from inside the bar. It was a bar. After all, police officials told WFAA they were on hand only for crowd control. Alex Stein said seven year olds tipping drag queens and hanging out with a 21 and up bar. The Dallas and Dallas Police Department is letting it happen. Why not enforce the law? Big question mark. Well, the Democrats suggested a 1,000 percent tax when purchasing an AR-15 rifle. Well, the recent violence is prompting one House Democrat to draft a measure aimed at severely restricting access to AR-15 style weapons used by different gunmen on this carnage. Representative Donald Byer of Virginia, a member of the tax writing House Ways and Means panel, wants to impose a 1,000 percent excise tax on assault weapons. What's uh, it what it's intended to do is provide another creative pathway of actually making some sensible gun control buyer said speaking to the insider, the business insider. We think that a one thousand percent fee on assault weapons is just the kind of restrictive measures that creates enough fiscal impact to qualify for reconciliation. New AR-15 style guns range from $500 to $2,000, depending on location. NBC News reports that means a a, um, Two thousand dollar, or rather, a one thousand dollar tax on the weapon would add an additional five to twenty thousand dollars to their final sales price, and would probably keep it out of reach for many younger Americans. Representative Don Breyer says Congress must act to prevent mass shootings. I'm writing a bill to restrict the flow of weapons of war into American communities, including AR-15s and high-capacity magazines, which, by the way, most modern handguns now use, that could bypass the filibuster and pass with just 50 votes in the Senate. We'll see how that goes. The Daily Wire says Byers' plan is to pass the bill through reconciliation, which would allow it to bypass the 60-vote threshold for breaking the filibuster because it is a tax proposal. It could meet the requirement for reconciliation, according to experts. According to a new Rasmussen poll, a growing number believed the 2020 election was marked by systematic and widespread election fraud. Well, the Matt Rasmussen report says a national telephone and online survey finds that 77 percent of those likely U.S. voters who have seen 2000 Mules, the um, Dinesh D'Souza film, 
say the movie strengthened their conviction that there was systematic and widespread election fraud in the 2020 election. Only 19 percent of those who have seen the documentary say their belief in election fraud was weakened. Among voters who have seen the documentary, 78 percent say that they would recommend the movie to others, regardless of whether or not they share their political beliefs. That includes 84 percent of Republicans, 73 percent of Democrats and 74 percent of unaffiliated voters who have seen the film. One note, Salem Media Group, the creators of Daybreak, is the executive producer of 2000 Mules. Bumblebees in California will now be considered fish. You know, it's the 21st century. It's not really all that surprising to me. Further abuse of the endangered species ordinances. A bumblebee is a fish under California law. The California court said in a ruling this week, and thus the bumblebee should be protected by the state's endangered species ordinance. Court documents show. Well, in the case, Almond Alliance of California versus Fish and Game Commission, the California State Appellate Court of the 3rd District said the issue presented here is whether the bumblebee, a territorial invertebrate, falls into the definition of a fish, according to legal documents. The New York Post says it's uh, it reversed a lower court's ruling in favor of agricultural interests who argue the state's Endangered Species Act protected only birds, mammals, fish, amphibians, reptiles and plants, not bees or other bugs. The decision was a victory for environmental groups and the state's Fish and Game Commission, which had uh, pushed a list for uh, of four bees species as endangered. So how that translates into policy, what you can and cannot do remains to be seen. Well, Dr. Oz has won the Pennsylvania GOP primary over the weekend following a recount in the Pennsylvania Republican Senate primary race. Dave McCormick conceded the election to Donald Trump endorsed TV celebrity doctor Mehmet Oz. It's now clear to me that the recount now largely complete that we have a nominee, McCormick stated tonight is really about all us, all of us coming together. Dr. Oz noted that he had received McCormick's gracious phone call and said, now that our party, our primary is over, we will make sure that this U.S. Senate seat does not fall into the hands of the radical left led by John Finterman. While Oz is accurate in identifying Finterman as a leftist radical, the trouble is that Oz himself can hardly be considered a conservative. At best, he may be classified as fiscally conservative, but his stance on everything from transgenderism to abortion to guns has long been on the left of the aisle. As McCormick insightfully observed, Dr. Oz is a Hollywood liberal. Should Oz succeed in winning the general election, one wonders if he'll end up being more of a thorn than an asset to Senate Republicans. Overdoses were up 700 percent right here in the state of Oregon. Well, the story should come as a shock to absolutely no one. Overdoses in the Beaver State have spiked by 700 percent following voters decision to decriminalize hard drugs. In November of 2020, the Oregonians um, gave the thumbs up on the to the ballot measure 110 that decriminalized hard drugs like heroin and meth. According to the provision, individuals caught possessing such hard drugs would no longer be arrested. Instead, possession of narcotics would simply be treated like a traffic violation. Offenders would receive a citation and be fined up to $100. And that money would then fund drug treatment programs rather than criminal prosecutions. To avoid paying the fine, those cited could have it removed if they called a drug abuse hotline and received a health assessment. After a year and a half under the new law, the uh, number of those opting for the drug treatment call has been negligible, while the number of those abusing the hard drugs has spiked. It's almost as if these drug users don't want help to get off the drugs. 
Shocking, we know. But what's missing in this equation, says Cascade Policy Institute analyst Rachel Dawson, is any kind of personal accountability. Many of those who need help won't seek it out. Drug courts were helpful in this uh, regard because they pushed addic- uh, addicts rather into treatment, which reduced substance use and drug-involved crimes. Officials should consider adding similar teeth to this program. Well, Ohio and Louisiana are looking to harden their schools. In the wake of the most recent school massacre, a couple of states have decided to take some of the more obvious and practical actions to prevent such events from hitting their schools. Ohio just passed a bill that Republican Governor Mike DeWine is expected to sign that will allow teachers to carry firearms. My office worked with the General Assembly to remove hundreds of hours of curriculum irrelevant to school safety to ensure training requirements were specific to school environments and contained uh, significant scenario-based training. DeWine stated, as he noted, that the recently passed bill would help further this school security agenda. In Louisiana, Republican State Senator Eddie Lambert introduced legislation that would allow teachers to carry firearms on school grounds after they have received specialized training. They don't want anybody who is not fully trained in this situation, Lambert explained. Both Texas and Florida have laws on the books that allow for teachers to be specifically trained in order to carry firearms on school property. In Texas, though, the law was established in 2013. Fewer than 300 teachers have taken part in the program. Following the Uvalde massacre, this may change. Are we out of time, Sam? Okay, I'll take a break, but we'll be back in just a few moments after news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in this hour, we'll talk with Jeff Johnston. He's the culture and policy analyst for Focus on the Family. He'll talk about some practical ways to talk with young children about uh, Pride Week and how, as a believer, to respond to these issues in a way that reflects the character of Christ. That's coming up in the next uh, well, couple of segments. Well, North Korea is chairing the U.N.'s conference on disarmament. And no, this isn't satire. I probably need to repeat that because you don't think it could be true. North Korea is chairing the U.N.'s conference on disarmament, which tells you everything you need to know about why the U.N. is um, so ineffective in so many ways. The Department of Justice indicted former Trump advisor Peter Navarro for contempt of Congress. Well, the J6 committee advisor uh, admitted there is no smoking gun showing Trump planned the riot at the U.S. Capitol, but that won't stop the hearings that are coming up. Democrat Senator Chris Murphy insists President Biden not get involved with bipartisan gun negotiations. And Senator Lindsey Graham unveiled a plan to help employ veterans to stop school shootings. Texas school shooting victims are taking action against a gunmaker, and the police chief had no radio during the Uvalde school shooting. He had no idea there were students alive in that classroom still calling 911. On the Buffalo shooting, the 911 dispatcher has been fired after mishandling the call. Now, that took place, as you might recall, at a grocery store on a Saturday a couple of weeks ago. Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown Jackson was seen applauding New Zealand's gun confiscation law which uh, raised eyebrows of some as we're trying to anticipate what kind of jurist will she be. The Louisiana legislature passed a bill to ban mail-order abortion drugs. Seventy Georgia churches split from the United Methodist Church over LGBTQ issues, and a man dressed as a woman threw a cake at the Mona Lisa. Point made, I guess. NFL's Panthers added a gender dysphoric male cheerleader to their roster, 
in a show of virtue signaling. And multiple Major League Baseball Tampa Bay Rays players are refusing to wear Pride Night logos, citing religious reasons. Minneapolis will be the first major U.S. city to publicly broadcast the Islamic call to prayer on loudspeakers. At least 50 were killed in a massacre at a Catholic church in southwest Nigeria. More on that later in the program. The Chilean uh, president wants full bans on gun ownership in that country. And Russia hit Kiev with missiles. Putin warned the West on arms and other Russian general, another rather, Russian general has been killed. On this day in history, 1865, eight people, including Mary Surratt and Samuel Mudd, are convicted by a military commission of conspiring with John Wilkes Booth to assassinate the president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Four defendants, rather, including Surratt, are uh, executed. Mudd is sentenced to life in prison, but pardoned by President Andrew Jackson in 1869, four years later. 1934, Adolf Hitler launched a bloody purge of political and military rivals in Germany in what came to be known as the Night of the Long Knives. 1936, the Civil War novel Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell is first published by the Macmillan Company in New York. 1950, President Trump orders um, some... Trump, he wasn't around in... Uh, in the White House in 1950, 1950, President Truman, there's kind of a crease in the page there. President Truman orders ground troops to Korea. 1953, the first Chevrolet Corvette with its innovative fiberglass body is built at a General Motors assembly facility in Flint, Michigan. 1956, 66 years ago on this day in history, a little black baby girl is born to Clarence and Lillian Rose. They would name her Georgine. 1963, Pope Paul Pope Paul VI is crowned the 262nd head of the Roman Catholic Church. 1966, the National Organization of Women, or NOW, is founded in Washington, D.C. 1971, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three that the government could not prevent the New York Times or the Washington Post from publishing the Pentagon Papers. Also in 1971, the 26th Amendment, which lowers the voting age from 21 to 18, is ratified. 1971, a Soviet space mission ends in tragedy when three cosmonauts aboard Soyuz 11 are found dead of asphyxiation inside their capsule after it had returned to Earth. 1985, the 39 remaining hostages from hijacked TWA Flight 847 are freed in Beirut after 17 days. 1997, the British territory of Hong Kong is transferred to China. 2009, American soldier Bo Bergdahl vanishes from his base in eastern Afghanistan and is later confirmed to have been captured by insurgents. Bergdahl would be released on May the 31st, 2014, in exchange for five Taliban detainees. 2017, German Parliament uh, votes to legalize same-sex marriage. And finally, on this date in history, 2019, President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and yes, this actually is President Trump, they meet and shake hands at the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea in their first face-to-face meeting since an ill-fated summit in Hanoi, Vietnam, that passed February. It came essentially to naught. Well, a scoop on the January 6th committee's secret advisor, Axios reports that the House January 6th committee has turned to a renowned former network news executive to hone a mountain of explosive material into a captivating multimedia presentation for a primetime hearing on Thursday. Not just a regular congressional hearing to get to the bottom of things, 
But this is a prime time hearing that has all the production value of, well, 60 minutes. James Goldston, former president of ABC News and a master documentary storyteller who ran Good Morning America and Nightline, has joined the committee as an unannounced advisor, Axios has learned. Why it matters? Well, uh, Goldson is busily producing Thursday's 8 p.m. Eastern Time hearing as if it were a blockbuster investigative special rather than just a hearing, a partisan hearing at that. He plans to make it raw enough so that skeptical journalists will find the material fresh and chew over the disclosures in future coverage. And he wants to draw the eyeballs of Americans who haven't followed the ins and outs of the Capitol riot probe. So this will be a performance slash presentation. He is shaping a massive trove, we're told. The hearing will be a mix of live witnesses and pre-produced videos. Uh, We're told that the committee has gained access to official White House photographs from January 6, 2021, that have never been seen publicly. Only a fraction of the surveillance footage from inside the Capitol, all kinds of angles were captured, uh, has been shown. And many of the committee's depositions were videotaped, and we'll see clips of them. One aide says the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol has conducted more than 1,000 depositions and interviews with more scheduled, received 140,000 plus documents, and is following up to 472 tips received through the committee's online tip line. The hearing, the first of a series of committee uh, hearings, most will be during the day, but this is a prime time presentation, have the makings of a national event. All uh, at least two of the broadcast networks will interrupt evening programming for live coverage anchored by ABC's David Muir and CBS's Nora O'Donnell. NBC will announce plans soon. The other side, Republicans will argue that the one sixth committee, uh, which consists of seven Democrats plus handpicked Republicans who would uh, vote a particular way, is just out to get former President Trump as part of a Republican counter programming blitz. Key members of Congress are already booked for cable interviews after the hearing. Well, it'll be something to see, something to believe. I'm not so sure, but certainly something to see. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Back, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Jim Johnston will join us in our next segment. We'll talk about uh, Pride Week and how to navigate that with young children, for parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, those who care. Well, the the president is going to um, a pariah state, and that's the word he used to apply to this particular country as a candidate uh, to beg for well gas. Well, The Hill reports that President Biden and his officials are laying the groundwork for a high-profile meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, reversing course on the campaign promise to isolate the powerful Gulf leader. Well, tensions between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are at a high over the range of issues from the Saudi government's repression of opposition and its role in the killing of a Washington Post opinion journalist, uh, Riyadh uh, action in the war in Yemen. Well, they Forgot uh, <clears throat> forgot other uh, one another's uh, tensions, that of the Biden administration's willingness to cave at every turn to the Iranian mullahs in an effort to stitch back together Barack Obama's uh, nuke deal, thanks to um, which Iran now has enough uranium to produce a nuclear weapon. How times have changed. Tough talk and Joe during one of the uh, 
Democrat debates in 29, uh, 2019 said this. I would make it very clear we are not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were uh, uh, going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the in the present government in Saudi Arabia, end quote. But the president's latest kowtow is, uh, as the Washington Post notes, a remarkable departure from his vow as a presidential candidate to treat the country as a pariah state. According to three administration officials who requested anonymity to share details of a trip not yet announced. Well, the Post continues, the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia ruptured after the 2018 killing of Jamal Khashoggi, a Washington Post columnist and outspoken critic of the Saudi government. American intelligence has concluded that Mohammed uh, bin Salman, the crown prince and de facto leader, ordered the killing of Khashoggi. But why take the trip at all? One wonders, is oil uh, taken out of the ground in Abraham or, or I should say Arabian Peninsula, somehow better for the environment or the American economy than oil taken out of the ground in Texas or from neighboring Canada through the now canceled Keystone XL pipeline or from that vast uh, northern wasteland known as the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Well, no. In fact, given that our drilling technology is so advanced and our environmental standards so much higher, it's certainly worse for the environment. What a waste of potential. Doesn't Scranton Joe know that domestic energy sector jobs are good paying jobs? Furthermore, doesn't he know that the U.S. sits atop more oil reserves than any other country in the world, more than Saudi Arabia or Russia? Of course, he knows. And yet he'd rather, well, suck up the um, oil from the ground from the Saudi princes and shovel American dollars into their coffers. Well, as the uh, as Nate Johnson, I should say, Jackson quipped. Biden seemingly has a sorry slogan, drill, baby, drill anywhere but here. And that seems to be uh, the the central theme of the trip that the president is about to take. Well, a federal grand jury has indicted Peter Navarro, a former Trump White House advisor, on criminal contempt of Congress charges over his refusal to cooperate with a House investigation on the January 6th attack. The indictment comes after the House voted in April to refer Navarro to the Justice Department for failing to comply a February subpoena. Navarro was charged with one contempt count for his refusal to appear for all depositions and another for his refusal to produce documents required Requested by the committee. The committee said in a letter to Navarro alongside the February subpoena that it had reason to believe the former trade advisor had information relevant to the investigation, citing reports that he worked with former Trump White House advisor Steve Bannon and others to create a plan to delay the certification of the president's victory, uh, President Biden's 2020 victory, and ultimately change the outcome of the November 2020 election. Navarro rejected the panel's request, arguing that former President Trump has invoked executive privilege. Privilege, and it's not my privilege to waive. Well, the Justice Department charged Bannon with contempt of Congress related to the committee's investigation in November. He is awaiting trial. Meanwhile, Navarro is set to appear in court on Friday in Washington, D.C., according to the Justice Department. Well, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson survived a removal vote from members of his own party this evening. Sir Graham Brady, MP, chairman of the 1922 Committee of Conservative Party Backbenchers, announced the results of the vote on Monday night in the Palace of Westminster. 211, uh, 211, 211 MPs voted in favor of keeping Johnson in office. 148, 148 voted against. A majority of backbenchers and a number much higher than expected. Well, the vote was triggered by after 54 conservative members of parliament or 15 percent of the caucus wrote to Brady 
that they had no confidence in Johnson's re, uh, leadership of the party. The threshold was uh, met after a months-long public and private campaign by some conservative MPs to oust Johnson. Since the year began, 19 MPs has called for Johnson to resign or be removed. And that effort has now come officially to an end. Well, it was late afternoon on New Year's Eve in 2020, and Troy McAllister was high on drugs and tearing through downtown San Francisco in a stolen car. The career criminal was a rap sheet, uh, has a rap sheet dating back to the mid 90s, had just stolen a cash register from a local bakery. Driving fast, he ran a red light, lost control of the car and struck two women on the sidewalk. The women were killed. McAllister ran, but he was chased by San Francisco police officers and arrested. Critics of San Francisco's progressive district attorney, Cheza Bowden, who is facing a recall election tomorrow, say that McAllister should have been in jail at the time of the crash. Abe and Platt should be alive. The two women who were struck, they say, Bowden's... um, Criminal-friendly policies are to blame. McAllister was already behind bars awaiting trial on armed robbery charges when a plurality of San Francisco voters elected Budan to to be the city's next district attorney in November of 2019. The son of a weather underground terrorist campaigned as a progressive criminal justice reformer and again the notion that to be free, we must cage others. Once in office, his team decided against using California's three strikes law to keep at McAllister in a cage for decades, negotiating instead a plea deal that allowed him to be released on parole immediately. But back on the streets in San Francisco, he didn't stay out of trouble. He was arrested five times in 2020 for a variety of crimes, including carjacking, possession of burglary tools, possession of methamphetamines. Budin's office declined to um, file charges in all three of those cases. Ultimately, that ended in the deaths of two innocent women. Says a San Francisco community activist, political independent, and one-time candidate for mayor who has helped to lead the effort to oust Budin from office. That vote will be taken tomorrow, and we'll let you know of the outcome. Ilya Shapiro has resigned from Georgetown Law School. As noted on Thursday, he's a reinstatement at Georgetown's law school may have been a victory for outside pressure against the forces of cancel culture. But it also sent an unambiguous signal that Georgetown would have caved to the mob and fired Shapiro if it was uh, at liberty to do so and would lie in wait for the first instant that a student found it politically uh, useful to claim offense at Shapiro in order to make that happen once his uh, defenders had let down their vigilance. Well, that makes an obvious mockery of the university's supposed commitment to the sort of robust free speech we associate with, or at least used to associate with, uh, academic freedom when the speaker is left of center. Shapiro is not a fool, and rather than work under such conditions, he submitted his resignation this morning. National Review obtained a copy of his letter of resignation, citing the hostile work environment you have created. You have made it impossible for me to fulfill the duties of my appointed post, he writes. You've painted a target on my back such that I could never do the job I was hired for. By allowing any student to claim offense without proving that offense was intended or that comments were objectively offensive, all sorts of comments that someone, anyone, could find offensive would subject me to disciplinary action. This would be a huge sword of Damocles over my head as I try to engage in my educational mission, end quote. He also noted the absurdity of suspending him for four months simply to read a tweet 
um, and conclude that it was written before he started the job. A sham investigation that apparently couldn't be uh, resolved by looking at the calendar. The problem is endemic. The proliferation of IDEAA style offices, more typically style diversity, equity and inclusion, enforce an orthodoxy that stifles intellectual diversity, undermines equal opportunity and excludes dissenting voices. Even a stalwart T-14 law school dean bucks these bureaucrats at his peril. He goes on from there, but a rather interesting assessment of the uh, of the situation. Up next, we're going to hear from Jeff Johnston, culture and policy analyst with focus on the family. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, June is LGBTQIA month. It's Pride Month. And activists, organizations, and the entertainment industry are celebrating with new Pride merchandise. They've got clothing lines, shows, and even food items. So how can Christian parents navigate the current culture and respond appropriately? Well, my next guest, Jeff Johnston, is the culture and policy analyst for Focus on the Family. He says the LGBT issues aren't confined to just one month, and parents can't just bury their heads in the sand. It's not a matter of if your children will encounter LGBT issues, but when they will, and how to respond with grace, truth, and courage. Well, to help us do just that, to respond with grace and courage, is Jeff Johnston. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. Thank you for having me on the broadcast. You know, I don't typically uh, watch a lot of television. I was watching an innocuous station. It was one of the, you know, kind of the home stations. It happens to be part of the Discovery Network. And literally every commercial focused on uh, the the month as Pride Month and went into great detail and specifics about the kind of programming that was coming. Some of it was shocking to me. It seemed wholly inappropriate. But nonetheless, you're absolutely right. I'm watching the Food Network. You can't escape the month that we're in. And how do we navigate all of this, particularly when we have children in the home? No, you're right. It's everywhere. It's um, in corporations. It's in education, arts and entertainment, media, and social media. And so parents need to be prepared. And what we suggest at Focus on the Family is, first of all, that parents lay a solid foundation with their children about God's good design for marriage and sexuality and relationships. Now, this doesn't mean that you're talking to your little four-year-old about sex, but it does mean that you're talking to your little four-year-old about how God made boys and girls, and both of those are good, and both are made in God's image, but they're different from each other. And if you have a little girl, you affirm her as a girl and say, it's wonderful that God made you a girl, and you have a little boy, you bless his masculinity, and you say, God made you masculine, and that's a good thing. And you know, it's not just parents, it's um, Sunday school teachers, grandparents, Mm -hmm. Um, church leaders, this needs to be coming from the church as well, that God made us male and female. And then the second thing you teach your kids is, what is marriage? Marriage brings together a mommy and a daddy. And again, you're not talking about sex at all. You're talking very basically about God's good design for marriage and how marriage leads to family and children. And those are all good things created by God. And so we start with that foundation And then I think you can talk to your kids about how 
of course, people sin and they make mistakes, and there are people we dis- disagree with and who do things that, that aren't good. Um, we still want to love those people and respect them, but it's okay to disagree with them. And I think that gives you a solid foundation for when your kids then start to encounter LGBT issues. I know for a lot of parents, it may be surprising to learn that very young children are being exposed and specifically targeted to um, provide information that is uh, going to indoctrinate them into a worldview that would uh, reject what you've just described. I noted a couple of headlines just from the last day or two. One in Texas, where they've introduced a bill that bans children from drag shows after the Drag the Kids to Pride event. And some of the details are entirely inappropriate that I, I wouldn't even repeat on the air. Uh, there were some protesters who showed up, but this was an event billed as a family-friendly drag show, uh, a spinoff of their uh, champagne drag brunch that would allow kids to dance with performers on stage. And I won't I won't quote some of the signs that were uh, visible to to kids. And then Mattel, just this last week, they've created a transgender Barbie. I'm not sure how you tell a, a Barbie is transgender, and I don't really want to think too deeply about that. But uh, the uh, the doll is is uh, formed in the likeness of actor Laverne Cox, a biological male who identifies as a female. And these are targeted specifically for children. And these are just two examples. We're not even going into what uh, some are suggesting is appropriate for kids in kindergarten on up. What's happening in culture and in schools that's prompting uh, this kind of concern and pushing this kind of agenda? Well, This is something that has been developing slowly over time, and it it didn't start with the LGBT community. Um, This started with the sexual revolution Mm -hmm. and the explosion of pornography and with our divorce culture. And then 50 years ago, with the beginning of the, the gay pride movement, it's been a slow increase over time. You know, this started as one parade in New York City on one day and then it spread to other cities and then it became a week of celebrations and festivals and then it became a whole month and now to be honest with you it's year-round you can find lgbt pride events from january through december in the u.s and around the world and it's they've made inroads into every area Um, corporations are graded by the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest LGBT activist group in the U.S., they're graded on how much they support the LGBT agenda. And there are hundreds of corporations that are supporting gay pride and LGBT issues. So it's been a a slow growth over the last 50, 60, 70 years, but then it just has accelerated recently. I think um, the Obergefell decision legalizing Mm -hmm. same-sex marriage uh, Bruce Jenner announcing his, his transition from, you know, so-called transition from male to female. The, all those things have accelerated, accelerated these issues, and now we're just seeing it every place. And kids are being exposed um, on, cartoon, on cartoons, on television shows, library books. Um, there was a story today about Pizza Hut having a reading program. And the books they're recommending for June are three LGBT pride books. So it is everywhere. And and we encourage parents, you know, protect your kids as much as possible. Kids don't need to be confused and sexualized when they're very young. It's not healthy. It's damaging. It arouses their sexuality and their curiosity much too early. 
and it's confusing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the same time, we want to teach them God's good truth, you know, that he made them male and female and what his design for marriage is. I know that one of the um, issues that Focus on the Family really emphasizes is not just responding, but responding with grace and truth and courage for parents who might be confronted with uh, or by those who want to, and I would say, indoctrinate their children into this line of thinking that sexualizes them. And some would go so far as uh, to, to say that, that there are efforts to groom children as well. How can parents respond outside the home to those who uh, want to um, present these very mature themes to very young children with grace, truth, and courage in a way that reflects the character of Christ? Well, when we're dealing with one-on-one relationships, I, I want to suggest that people lead with love. And especially um, if you're talking to somebody who's struggling, if you're talking to a family member or somebody in the church who is wrestling with these issues, you want to respond with grace. Of course, you're going to hold on to biblical truth, but people need to know they're loved, and it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. But when we're talking about the public arena, I suggest that people lead with the truth. Um, we want to be kind, we want to be courageous, and we want to be wise in our language. You know, there's um, some language that's not very helpful in mm-hmm. public debates, but I think we have to be bold and, and lead with the truth when we're dealing with these public issues. So in, in schools, for example, we're seeing parents rise up all across the country um, saying, no, those library books are not going to be in our school library and they're not going to be in our classrooms. And, and I applaud that. I think parents need to be standing up, first of all, at the local level and then at the national level. You know, start, start small with where you are. Um, here in the Springs, I know, uh, I know of at least four churches in Colorado Springs that just in the last few years have started public policy teams or culture impact teams, and they work to educate parents and to equip their congregations. They bring in uh, school board members for debates and panels. They have educational presentations, and uh, one group is even putting together a church voter guide. It's a nonpartisan voter guide that a nonprofit can put out, but they ask the candidates serious questions about these issues. And and I think uh, churches need to get involved in these issues, um, especially since it's it's increased so rapidly. And, and we want to say no to it. We want to put a stop to it. Well, I so appreciate the, the leadership and the resource that Focus on the Family has and continues to be for families who are trying to navigate some very difficult waters Uh, in our culture. And I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today to help equip and challenge parents to uh, to step up with the kind of courage you described, but doing so with grace and truth and parenting their children uh, and helping them to navigate through these difficult uh, seasons as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Georgie. And I appreciate you tackling these difficult issues, too. Thank you. Thank you. Again, Jeff Johnston is the culture and policy analyst for Focus on the Family on how to, uh, as a parent, a talk with your kids. He mentioned that there's one month, but I have a calendar here that has every month of the year. There's the Glisten No Name Calling Week. There's the Bisexual Health Awareness Month, International Transgender Day of Visibility, the Day of Silence, National Transgender HIV Testing Day, International Asexual Day, a Lesbian Visibility Day. These are different months. International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, Biphobia, Agender, uh, Pride Day, it falls under the non-binary umbrella. You have to look some of these up. Pansexual and 
uh, Pan-Romantic Awareness and Visibility Day, the Pulse Remembrance Day, uh, Queer Youth Day, Non-Binary Awareness Day, International Non-Binary Day, International Drag Day, Omnisexual Visibility Day, Bisexual Awareness Week. There's uh, Celebrate Bisexuality Day, National Coming Out Day, International Pronoun Day, Spirit Day, Asexual Awareness Day, Intersex Awareness Day, Transgender Parent Day, Intersex Solidarity Day, Transgender Awareness Week, Pansexual Pride Day. Those are just a few, but the ones I mentioned cover every month of the calendar, so it isn't just a month. There are uh, events and occasions in which these subjects are being championed throughout the year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, 70 churches, seven zero churches in Georgia, split from the United Methodist Church last week. It's largely over LGBTQ issues. It marks the latest in a growing divide within the third largest Protestant denomination here in the U.S. Well, the North Georgia Conference voted last Thursday to allow the churches, most of which were in rural areas, to disaffiliate from the UMC. Well, the process to disaffiliate was laid out by a 2019 General Conference of the United Methodist Church through 2023. That's according to the North Georgia United Methodist Church Conference website. Well, in 2021, the Board of Trustees adopted a process and, along with district superintendents, walked alongside the churches that requested to disaffiliate. The conference established ratification by the annual conference as the final step in that process. Well, during a special session back in 2019, the UMC adopted a disaffiliation agreement and it allowed churches to leave the denomination through the end of uh, next year for reasons of conscience regarding a change in the requirements and provisions of the Book of Discipline related to the practice of homosexuality or the ordination or marriage of self-avowed participating homosexuals as resolved and adopted by the 2019 General Conference or the actions or inactions of uh, of that conference. Well, the 70 churches, 7-0, that chose to disaffiliate, they represent 9% of the congregations in the conference and 3% of the membership, according to the denomination. The date of disaffiliation will be effective uh, later this month. After the vote, the Bishop Sue Hoppert Johnson and the members of the annual conference offered prayer for the departing churches, some of which will remain independent and others will simply dissolve. Bless these con- congregations as they depart, she prayed. I pray that we will be partners in ministry and you will do your mighty work of healing division and overcoming rifts. Our denomination has a clear process for disaffiliation and we are walking alongside the churches that want to take this path. The conference communications director went on to say, while we do wish uh, to see, we do not wish rather to see any church disaffiliate. We are committed to a clear and healthy process. Our hearts are with those who desire for their congregation to remain a part of the denomination and also with those who chose to leave. End quote. Uh, They went on to say it's painful when we have division in the church. We pray that above all, the ministry of all churches will be fruitful and serve God well. The United Methodist Church will continue working to be agents of reconciliation in a divided world. Well, the Methodists uh, trace their roots back to 18th century English evangelist John Wesley, whose followers split from the Church of England following his death. So yet again, we're seeing the body of Christ splinter over theological issues. And I'm reminded of Jesus' prayer in John 17 that we, you and I, followers of Jesus, would be one just as he and the Father are one and that the world would look on and by virtue of our love for one another and our 
ability to embrace common goals in serving Christ and extending his love into our culture, uh, that they would know that Jesus is who he says he is. We have failed, generally speaking, but fidelity to Scripture is an important matter. And once again, we see another occasion in which it has split the church. Well, on Pentecost Sunday in Abuja, Nigeria, four gunmen stormed a Catholic church during Mass. They massacred at least 50 worshipers. I just want to stop there for a moment and think about where you spent your Sunday morning in your congregation. For some churches, 50 worshipers would wipe out the entire congregation. For others, maybe a section of the church. But 50 distinct followers of Jesus, worshipers, um, were massacred in one of the most brutal rampages of the year. Now, there's been a lot going on in Nigeria of late uh, that you don't read a lot about in the headlines. But as word of this attack spread, so too did outrage that the violence in this African nation continues on. Now, you might think, well, I'm not a Catholic. Uh, these uh, people who were responsible for this massacre don't make uh, theological or denominational distinctions. They were perceived Christian, and that was enough. The, the differences in theology made little difference to them. And while Christians have been routinely targeted by Nigeria's Islamic extremists there, this latest slaughter in the country's relatively peaceful southwest is sounding some new alarms. It is a Black Sunday and Oa, uh, said the governor of that area, whose name I won't attempt to mispronounce. He said condemning a vile and satanic attack against people who have enjoyed re- relative peace over the years. Just a handful of days earlier, black clad extremists wielding AK-47s reportedly opened fire as believers left an evening service in Nigeria's uh, Adu village, leaving three, including a young girl, seriously injured. Islamic extremists are hunting and killing us on a daily basis, often intimidating us by displacing us through burning of our houses and properties and destroying our farms, one individual told the International Christian Concern. Well, news of both shootings coincided with the publication of the 2021 report on international religious freedom. I'm still upset about last year's removal of Nigeria as a country of particular concern. That's a quote from Sam Brownback, the former ambassador at large for international religious freedom under President Trump before Sunday's tragedy. That was not called for. The situation continues to be terrible, and that's shown forth as well in the report. Well, the State Department records 1,112 conflict-related deaths in Nigeria in 2021, many of them clashes between religious groups. In May, criminals shot and killed eight Christians, burned down a church, several homes, In Kaduna State, the report says, in September, Muslim herders killed at least 49 persons, abducted 27, most of whom were Christian, in several attacks on communities in religiously mixed southern Kaduna State. The report also cites several cases of Muslim men kidnapping young Christian girls and forcing them into marriage and conversion to Islam. The scripture says that we are to grieve with the persecuted as if we ourselves are being persecuted And I hope you will include Nigeria in your prayers, that God would intervene and protect his people there and prevent the uh, the violent um, opposition from being successful. With regard to the U.S. Department of State's release of its 2021 annual report on international religious freedom last week, they described conditions in nearly 200 nations delivering remarks from the Benjamin Franklin Room. Where the U.S. ambassadors are sworn into service, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken presented a litany of well-known offenders. China, he says, continues its genocide against Uyghur Muslims. Saudi Arabia makes illegal the practice of any faith besides Islam. Pakistan sentences people to death for blasphemy, and blasphemy is very broadly defined. 
And Eritrea demands reunification of faith to release the arrested members of religious minorities. Respect for religious freedom isn't only one of the deepest held values and a fundamental right, Blinken stated. It's also, from my perspective, a valued and vital foreign policy priority. Well, last November, these four nations were among the 10 he designated as countries of particular concern. A separate special watch list listed four more, Algeria, Comoros, Cuba, and Nicaragua. But three days after the report was released, a terrorist attack in Nigeria highlighted its omission. Dozens of Christians at that time were gunned down in a Catholic church on Pentecost Sunday. And one month earlier, a Christian college student was murdered by a mob over her alleged blasphemy against Islam. Pray for the persecuted church. Remember those who, for the sake of Christ, are suffering all day long. Well, we are out of time. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Looking forward to a conversation on the perversion of science and the consequence of the same. That's uh, coming up with my guest on the program tomorrow. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.